Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my pals David Moore and Evan Grant. Hello, fellas. How are we doing? Doing well, Kevin. Yourself? Well, I'm just doing peachy here. Uh, how about you, Evan? Uh, I'm I'm fine, Kevin. Everything is good. Um, we had a lovely, lovely weekend here. Gina had a couple of friends in from out of town. And um, they had a lovely time at the old 97s concert that I was supposed to go to. But since one of the friends was a surprise addition to the crew, um, I... They took your ticket? Gave up my ticket. Oh, what a guy you are. What a, what a I, fine... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of sad because I'm a little bit... You know, I, ha- I kind of have a crush on Rhett Miller. Um, and... Uh, I would have loved to have seen him play again on this 30th, 30th anniversary tour, but they will be in Phoenix during spring training. So maybe I'll sneak over to see them then. Um, and then the residue, of course, is that since Gina was at a concert and it was a couple of long nights, um, we're dealing with like some fortunately non-COVID related viruses early this week. So that's our that's the report from our house where it's thawed, but we're sick. That's cool. Why is it every time you have a good time, you sound miserable? Every yeah. time you or your family does something fun, you seem to be miserable about it. I'm I'm very happy, but we I, we there is misery. Kept that the cross in your the, voice. <laughs> misery always seems to be the residue of fun around here. You're you're talking to the Eeyore of the podcast here, David. Um, uh, well, uh, we have some news here as we're taping this on Tuesday, a Tuesday night up at Hillcrest High School. We're retiring the number of Kurt Thomas, uh, a legendary uh, Hillcrest basketball player, uh, played 18 years in the NBA and also uh, along the way played for the Mavericks. Most of his best years were with the Knicks, uh, also an All-American at TCU, one of only three players ever to uh, lead the nation in scoring and in rebounding. Uh, so it's, uh, it's going to be fun out at Hillcrest tonight. Looking forward to that. Um, any, any news from your camp, David? No, I'll keep that private. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's all good here. David's a man <laughs> of mystery. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you know what? We're all we're all happy <laughs> yeah, for him to be. Everyone man. else is the better for it too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We'll just let David hold on to that. My mystery is, is so boring. I don't think yeah. uh, it needs to be shared. No, it's okay. All right. Well, the the Mavericks made a little news uh, uh, this week over the weekend, didn't they? On Sunday, was was not seeing that coming. Uh, and I know that the Mavericks have been uh, rumored to be in. The run in for the trade for Kyrie Irving, uh, but I I just didn't really expect to see them step out there and make it happen. I really thought that he would end up going to the Lakers, but apparently there was some talk about the Nets owner <laughs> not wanting him to go to the Lakers. Maybe he had a little uh, resentment against Kyrie and didn't want to give him his wish, which was apparently that was his first choice uh, to go to the Lakers and play with LeBron James again. Uh, so at any rate, uh, that uh, was uh, a big. Trade. I've seen that uh, characterized in some camps as the by Mark Stein, the the biggest gamble uh, in franchise history. Uh, that is really sticking your neck out there to say that to me. There have been a lot of uh, crazy things that this franchise has done. Um, I, I would venture that it's not as bad a deal 
as the one that they ended up making for Kristaps Porzingis the first time in the first KP deal. Uh, I, I thought that was a great trade. They ended up giving up two first-round draft picks and, of course, multiple players. Uh, that probably ends up hurting them more in the long run than this one in which they gave up one first-round pick in 2029. They also, of course, gave up uh, Dorian Finney-Smith and Spencer Dinwiddie, uh, and that's two high-quality, high-character players who were significant factors in the Western Conference final, uh, Finals run last year. Um, so uh, we're going to obviously talk about that deal and the impact. Uh, I'm curious to wanna... know what you two think is the biggest gamble, if this isn't the biggest gamble in team history. So, Evan, I would say that Roy Tarpley uh, was, was might have been the biggest gamble at the time when they and they took him. He had, he had uh, issues. Um, and that's why he was available where they got him. Uh, and then he ended up being, I, I think you could say, the most controversial player in franchise history. Uh, so anything associated with Roy Tarpley, uh, I would say, was probably a little bit bigger than that. Um, there are other, obviously, uh, I think the thing that it, that makes Kyrie, obviously, a uh, maybe in the minds of a lot of people, and of course, this is the age of social media, and, and uh, we, we know everything about what people are doing is the fact that he's expanded his act well beyond basketball. Uh, of course, as we know, as an anti-vaxxer, if we go way back to Kyrie's past and the things he's talked about that were not offensive, just kind of wackadoodle. Uh, so uh, he's had a lot of things on his plate. Uh, he's uh, he's demanded trays and get out of places, and that has offended people as well. Uh, so I think what gets overlooked a little bit in all of that is that when he's played, he's been very good. And he's been a, he was a key linchpin on a, on a championship team. That's why LeBron James wanted him uh, back to play with him. So I, I do think there are, are a lot of things to look at here with Kyrie Irving. And I want to ask you, Evan, specifically your objections and why you might be a little conflicted about this acquisition. This is because I'm the, I'm the, the staff Jew in, in, in here, right? Because I'm the Jewish guy, right? Yes. Well, yes. No, I'm going to tell you, look, there's I I feel like there's plenty of off the court stuff that Kyrie Irving brings that makes it that does make it a huge risk and does make it a huge gamble. But I'm conflicted about whether or not I I think this is a good or bad move for the Mavericks. Um, I I think on the baggage element, you know, Kevin, to, to your point, right, we didn't even get into the flat earth stuff, which isn't controversial. It's just. Well, that's what um, the wackadoodle stuff yeah. was. Um, and then the anti-vax stuff, and then the stuff with the with the anti-Semitic movie um, last last fall. All of which it's like it's you make mistakes along the way, but I think where Kyrie really got himself into trouble um, is the idea of doubling down on this stuff and not not quickly admitting, "Look, I made a mistake," and I appreciate people pointing out where I where I made a mistake. Um, I'm fine with giving guys a second chance, but I do think, like, to your point also, if you compare this to Roy Tarpley, Tarpley was a guy who had some problems coming out of college, and they were serious issues. But you can also say there are guys who have issues in college as young players and eventually grow out of that. Kyrie's issues have been all as an adult NBA player, and at a time when you would think he's getting a little bit wiser, he doesn't appear so. On the flip side, I look at this almost like a baseball trade on July 31st for an impending free agent. 
The Mavericks swung big. They got a great talent here. All you have to do is keep this together, as far as I'm concerned, for the next three months. If you do that and you win the the West and go to the finals, um, and, and that's certainly up for grabs, then for me, after that, you don't bog yourself long-term with Kyrie. You let him walk at that point in time. You take the maximum cap space that you would then have and then go about and rebuild around Luka again. That would be the way I'd look at it. For me, that's a plus. I think that's how you mitigate some of the risks. I'm interested in why you guys think I'm nuts about that. Well, first of all, I want to ask David a specific basketball question, and obviously I want him to have his, have his say in this. But I want, I want to go back to the, the issue a little bit of, of Kyrie and why – because you raise a legitimate point about why he wasn't quick to point out that, Hey, this was anti-Semitic stuff that was in this film. This, this is ridiculous. And I, and I understand how people would be offended by that. And I'm sorry. Uh, is that Kyrie has always been a flashpoint, right? He, he's said crazy stuff. And, and I think when people are willing to step out there and say crazy things, and then they, they, they suffer the backlash of that, um, uh, and they keep doing it. it to me, it's a, a sign of somebody who is just stubborn and doesn't want to admit that he's wrong. And this is just part of his nature to do that. Uh, whether he believes that he's actually wrong or not, everybody telling him he's wrong is something that really bugs him. I, I frankly think Mark Cuban is one of those people. When, when Mark has been told this is wrong, you should apologize. This is bad. This was a, a bad idea. Mark has always been resolute in pushing back against that. Now, when he, has to say that he's sorry himself. If it's something he came up with, hey, I feel bad about this, he's quick to do that, but not when someone else tells him he's wrong. So I think that that's part of Kyrie's nature. I don't know him at all, but just from watching from afar, that has been my opinion of him. Uh, And I think, obviously, some of these things are loathsome. Do I think that he's anti-Semitic? I don't know him at all. I don't know why he would be, uh, but I don't know that we have evidence that uh, other than the fact that he pushed this thing along and retweeted this, and then ultimately did apologize, although after it was he'd been suspended by the, the Nets. So um, I'm not going to defend his uh, what he's done at all. I'm not going to say any of that was okay. Um, I, I do think that the Mavericks are accepting uh, quite a risk because of these things and what it means, and, and it's certainly in the times that we live in and what it means. Uh, from a purely basketball standpoint, I don't see that it as a gamble. Uh, what the Mavericks were doing wasn't working. What they had uh, done, accomplished last year with that roster, that roster was the big chunk of it left with Jalen Brunson and the addition of Christian Wood doesn't seem to be working out to me. This team was flailing for months now uh, and is being lifted solely by Luka Doncic. Uh, and I think that there was going to be too much to ask of him to think they can make another run back at it. So, yes, trading uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, is, is that's hard to do. Uh, trading Spencer did what he's hard to do for that matter because I do think, it, you know, now they, once again, they don't have a, a third point guard. Uh, so this is going to be difficult, although I don't think they're they're finished at the deadline. So, David, uh, let's spin it back to you and, and uh, let's get your thoughts about it as well before, I guess, we get into the actual basketball part of it. Yeah, a lot here to unpack. Uh, the the Roy Tarpley is the only other conversation you can have as far as uh, where this move ranks on the scale of uh, questionable or, or, or risk-reward ratio. Um, I would argue this is greater because uh, you have a player later in his career for much more money 
who uh, understands leverage and how to wield it. And uh, you didn't have that with, with Tarpley. And uh, th- so I, I think there are a lot of reasons this is bigger. To me, the other reason is, you know, this is going to implode. This is a move. We talk about risk reward. We know it's going to implode. It's just how long are these two together before it happens? Because you have seen nothing in his interactions with other clubs, good situations, bad situations, uh, different stages of, of his career that have ended any other way. And for you to go into this relationship and think it won't end the same way is foolish. So to me, the only question is, how long does this last? Is it three months? Is it two years, which is an extension he can sign instead of four years afterwards? Which which of these time frames is it going to be? And you also need to be very proactive in trying to escape before it reaches the level that it did with other franchises. And one other thing I'll bring up on this is, you know, Evan, you brought up the point, well, hey, let's say that say they're successful and then uh, you win and you move on. Well, I think that's going to be much more difficult. If they win, there's going to be a, a strong cry to keep this thing together, something Mark Cuban did not do uh, the only time this this team won a, a title. Uh, there's going to be even more pressure. And, and to me, to me, where you know you're dealing with different constraints than you normally do in a deal is, I really think your biggest question mark is, what if things go smooth here for three months and you go, hey, you know, we're the ones who finally know how to interact with Kyrie when no other team did. Let's go ahead and give him that contract. You could argue that's the absolute worst thing for the franchise going forward. And let me bring up another point. Now you bring in a guy this talented and it just underscores to Luca how little talent he has around him. And now you lose Kyrie Irving and there's no one on the free agent market that comes close in, in this free agent. Yes, you're going to have money, but no one comes close to his talent level. So now you've actually given Luca a taste of this forbidden fruit about what it's like to play with a really talented player that maybe you're never able to duplicate again here. So how does that factor in with his decision and how he views the franchise going forward? So I just think there are a lot more uh, e- explosive and potentially negative elements to this deal than positive. All of that being said, do I understand why you do it from a, fickle, a strictly physical uh, basketball skill standpoint? No question. He's shown he can work alongside ball-dominant players before, and he's carved out a very significant niche for himself. Very few players in this league can do that. On the court, this should work. I don't think there's any question that'll work on the court, but for how long and what what's what are the aftershocks you're going to be dealing with and for how long with this franchise to me is the overriding question. Yeah, I think that these are, and these are all great questions. And, and obviously it's like, uh, um, our, 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 what you always hear is, uh, the, the best predictor of future, uh, conduct is past conduct, right? Yes. So I do think there are a couple of factors here in that. Um, one, he's 30 years old now. Uh, this next contract he signs, uh, I'm going to say probably is going to be his most important because then coming out of that, he would be 34 or 35 years old. 
And then at that point, it's going to be problematic for him, uh, I think, uh, to continue at the same level. So this is going to be his his big his big deal, probably with whatever he gets. He's played for three franchises. He has been pointed out he's wanted until now. Uh, he's wanted out of all three places. Uh, that describes though uh, several superstars. I, I think of James Harden as one of those as well, uh, who, who's wanted out of places. And that's uh, and it's also been the the case with a lot of uh, superstars of his vintage uh, as well, including LeBron James. Um, so, uh, I, I don't feel like in the long run, yeah, let's say they sign him to a two year deal. He's lasted, uh, longer than that at all three stops, uh, and has success at all three stops. I think the Mavericks would take that. I think if they was, if you were to say to them, we're going to get to the NBA finals this year with, with Kyrie Irving, you're going to sign him for, for two or three or four years, whatever it is. And at the end of that, he's going to want out again. Uh, and, and they would say, if we're competing and going deep into the playoffs, we'll take that. Uh, because at, at the, in 2025, I believe is the year that, uh, is Luca's last before he has a player option in, uh, in the next season. Uh, and so at that point, uh, I think the only guys under contract will be Maxi Kleber, uh, maybe, uh, and, and Luca. I think that that's, that's it at this point. So they're going to be able to have a lot of space uh, in their uh, on their roster and under the salary cap to make other significant moves. Uh, I don't want to come off as the guy here who is saying that, you know, I feel like sometimes I'm the only one who's who's seeing any kind of upside to this. Um, I, I do think you're not. These are I, mean, all I, significant I, I do think that I, I see potential short term upside I, and. You know, to your point on the if, if you can sign him to a two year deal and you've got an NBA finals in the bag or you've got an NBA championship in the best case scenario, then you are kind of playing with some house money over the two years. But a four year commitment at that point in time, I think you're just saying, OK, we're not going to see the end of this contract and we're going to be signing up for unnecessary drama that's going to take away from 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 the team somewhere during the course of that. Oh, and I, I, I see immediate impact. In my mind, there is no way this team, as constructed before the deal, was going to get past the first round of the playoffs. This team should get past the first round of the playoffs now. And and they could. it's not inconceivable they could get back to the conference finals again, although I think we have to see how this shakes out if any other moves come down here and the health of the role players coming back. But to me, after this postseason – this is to be determined. But but oh, it, in the short term, no question. no question this is a better team, a more interesting team, and 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 should be discussed as as a, a you know a contender in the West now, where it was not before the deal. So let's talk about what the Mavericks do because the trade deadline is Thursday. Uh so uh and we're taping this on Tuesday. So uh, what else are the Mavericks need to do at this point? Obviously, Christian Wood has been a, a kind of a uh Flash until Kyrie Irving, he was the flashpoint of this team. Uh, you know, here was a guy that they went out and got from Houston and gave up a first round draft pick for. It was considered a good move. Uh, he has a lot of talent, do a lot of things. His numbers look great. Um, but never, it seems to me, does a guy's numbers more poorly reflect the, the impact he's making on a team. Uh, I, I've seen him being, uh, Christian Wood, being blamed for the Mavericks' sudden regression in defense. Um, 
And and now that's that defense is and certainly it is much worse than it was last year. And it's only going to get worse with the loss of Dorian Finney-Smith and to some extent even Spencer Dinwiddie. Um, so at this point, it seems to me that the Mavericks simply have to trade Wood now. The reason Wood wants to stay is because he's going to make more money if he's not traded now. Uh, if he stays and he's a free agent in June, he can make more money uh, because of the the crazy rules uh, in the NBA as far as contracts and how you can sign them. He would actually make more money as a free agent than if he is traded now. He could only sign for a, a two-year extension at, I believe, $32 million a year if he's traded at this point. So that's why that's a big reason why he'd want to stay here now. Uh, David, I don't know if you watched the game or Evan, if y'all watched the, the game against the Jazz last night, uh, that I, I tuned in a, partway into the first quarter. An amazing performance by Josh Green and Jaden Hardy, uh, both who put up 29 points. And that win at Utah, which uh, I'm sure that's just one of those things we can put down as somewhat of an anomaly. Uh, this is a deal where this was not really the team you were scouting all along. They played a completely different style from what they normally play without Luka. So really up-tempo. A lot of guys came off the bench. These are guys that uh, the Jazz are not used to seeing or anybody else is used to seeing. But I will say this. Uh, I stand corrected about Josh Green. Uh after that uh, draft, and they, they could have taken Sadiq Bay, who went to the Pistons and played very well as a rookie, and Josh Green was basically lost for two years. And then all of a sudden now, he's presented himself as an option for the Mavericks to replace Dorian Finney-Smith as the guy who, who pretty much picks up the uh, dominant offensive player on the opposing team on defense. Um, and then uh, and Jaden Harding, frankly, is just a revelation. Uh, when you watch him play, I am more confident when he has the ball in his hands, whether that's at the free throw line or if that's uh, on the court anywhere, than I am when Tim Hardaway has a ball in his hands. Uh, and that's another guy that the Mavericks, frankly, are, are trying to get rid of that contract. I think that's one of the things, too, that we had to take consideration when this trade was made. They were trying to move Hardaway in that deal instead of uh, Dinwiddie. I think that uh, the, the Nets wanted – Dorian Finney-Smith first, and then Dinwiddie as well, who they may be trying to flip at this point. They didn't They didn't want to take on that contract. Um, but these are guys that have been talked about uh, also in trades, and I think the Mavericks have been very hesitant to give them up. David, what do you see in those two guys, and do they have immediate future on this team? Well, uh, Josh Green, I think, is going to get the chance to fill the Dorian Finney-Smith role. Um, it appears uh, he's, he's developed so much. I think they feel good about that. Here's the other thing, too. With, with Kyrie Irving here, everybody moves over a spot in their importance to the team, right? Christian yeah. Wood, in my mind, was clearly the second best player now, which is probably pushing a little bit too much for where he should be. Well, now he's exactly where he should be on a good team. He's the third best player, the third option. Josh Green, you can get him more time now because he's going to be the fourth uh, starter in there. Um, and, and you can it, it's a role you can fit into and you're not asking him to do too much or, or particularly coming off the bench. So I think these guys can kind of develop. Uh, I, that is an upside on the addition of Irving. It, it, it puts guys in their proper spots where their talent really – uh, dictates where they should be 
but oftentimes they have to move over and play a role they're not really equipped to play because because you're strapped uh, on, from a personnel standpoint. Uh, Jalen Hardy's an intriguing guy to me. Always liked him. He's the fastest guy on the team, and he gives them an element they don't have. Um, it would be nice to see him. I mean, I think the ideal scenario for them. And I would actually keep Wood, get Wood to a contract if you could. And, and and I'm very interested to see how this goes forward with him as the third guy the rest of this season. Uh, you may be playing a style that's not as defensively strong as you want for Jason Kidd. Uh, but that triumvirate at the top uh, with uh, Luca, uh, Kyrie Irving, and Christian Wood, uh, it's as good as anything that, that you have in the Western Conference. So I would kind of like to see that play out. And uh, I think you can compensate for your, some of your defensive deficiencies because of that and then construct the team you want going forward, right? So I, I think you have to play to what your talent is now. Uh, I, I know we need to move on here, but uh, Hardaway is a contract they would like to get out from under. Uh, he's a very up-and-down player. He's a luxury uh, when he's hot, you use him. When not, uh, you have to put someone else in the rotation. And I think Hardy's going to take that spot in the rotation. And if Hardy shows a little bit more consistency, uh, you know, I, I could see him basically moving into the Hardaway role. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's going to be interesting to see. I think most people would argue that uh, that if Wood remains on the team and they and they're not able to add anybody else on defense that the Mavericks are going to have a struggle to to make a, a deep run in the playoffs. Of course they did that all last year based on their defense and on their three-point shooting. They were exhibiting none of that either one of those uh categories throughout most of this season which necessitated this trade in the first place. All right, uh, that's going to do it for our Mavs talk in uh, in this uh, podcast. Our next segment, we're going to talk about the Rangers. They're about to go to spring training. Evans got himself a little, uh, I think, what five things to look for in the uh, in spring training this year, Evan. Well, I, five is a good is always a good number, right, Kevin? I mean, it'd be better than picking like seven things to to pick to sh- look for or eighteen you. things. Correct. <laughs> Although I did do twenty three things about this team in twenty twenty three. Yes, you um, did. Yeah, and can you do that now? Can you go through that list right now off the top of your head? No, because Kevin shaved time off my Rangers segment, so um, we're going to have to keep <laughs> it much briefer. Um, yeah, we started the, we started running some of these projects this morning uh, online, this being Tuesday, and by the time this drops, hopefully we'll have a couple more of them online, but uh, l- let's run through a couple of them, Kevin. Um, I-, I think... I think the first thing, you know, is is obvious. Uh, I hate using this one because really every year I, I start asking people around the team, what are projects that you guys need to work on in spring training? What do you need to get done? And then I also, before I end that question, say, look, and this is assuming that health is always priority number one because, yes, you have to come out of spring training healthy. But in the case of this team, They've spent so much money and so much time this winter improving the pitching staff, and the pitching staff was what needed the most attention. They've also added a number of pitchers with significant injury histories. Um, If you just go back and look at Uvalde, Haney, DeGrom, and John Gray, those guys combined for 350 days missed last year alone. Um, so, So there are significant injury histories, and they need to spend time this spring figuring out how they best want to approach getting these guys not just ready for the year, 
and not just being ready for opening day, but how to best like schedule things out to try and keep them uh, fresh going down the stretch run, because that's where, that's where this team expects to be playing important games. Um, I talked a little bit with Mike Maddox about that. You know, there will, there will be some early precautions with DeGrom and with, with Haney. Um, both those guys will probably get one less start than other guys in spring, which I would imagine leads into uh, some more pro- restrictive pitch counts early in the year. Yavaldi um, and Martin Perez are both going to pitch in the WBC, so they'll be out of camp for a while. And I know that creates some some concern for some fans, but I also think that it, op- it, it better creates opportunities for guys like Dane Dunning and Glenn Otto who will be depth options in this rotation to get a game innings in spring training um, that they'll really need and be in a better position going into the year. If by some chance they do have another injury somewhere in the rotation. Um, So I, I, I think as boring as it sounds, doing what is necessary to make sure you are able to get these guys through this spring healthy and get them to a point where they will be best positioned uh, to, to be able to make, you know, look, if you got 25 starts out of each one of those three guys out of the, out of Heaney, Yavaldi and, and, and DeGrom, I think you'd be doing cartwheels about where this team would be. So then let me ask is, does this mean a six man rotation is a distinct possibility? I don't think so. Uh, I, first of all, I think, you know, Mike Maddox is a little bit, um, is a little bit traditional. I think secondly, when you start looking at the schedule and particularly in April with the number of off days you've got, you basically got one off day a week throughout April. Um, it's almost impossible to go to a, a six man rotation and keep guys on just five, on, on just five days of rest. So I, I think there will be some times in June um, and maybe August where the Rangers might drop a six man in there to get, uh, an extra day of rest for guys. But I think what Maddox would like to do, particularly with this rotation, is keep them on as close to a regular um, a regular stretch without having to juggle off days and, and, and move guys around uh, and build in that extra day of rest thanks to the way the schedule has been set up in the new CBA where there are a few more off days over the course of the year. Um so I, I think that they will go five-man rotation to start the year. I do think there may be some situations where they do, they do drop in uh, a six-starter. Like if you've got – there's a stretch really leading up to the All-Star break where I think they've got like 30 games in 31 days. That's a point in time where you might want to give somebody an, a, an extra breather. They've had some – they've done a half a season worth of work. You can, you can build in an extra off day for them there – and that might be a good time for them to get a little bit of a of, of a break. So, Evan, where are we on our count? Is that number one? That was number one. Um, Only twenty two more. There, yeah, <laughs> I, I I think the second thing, you know, this this kind of it, it's kind of hard to to think about this, or, or I, it didn't really dawn on me until just a day ago. But you know, the Rangers' third baseman is going to be Josh Young, and he's going to go to spring training this year healthy. And he's never had a full spring training. Um, 2020, his first spring training, you know, was canceled two weeks into camp because of the, the pandemic. 
2021, he suffered the stress fracture in his foot, middle of camp, uh, spent the next few months rehabbing. Last year, he was out all of, of, of spring training with the, uh, with the shoulder issue. So he comes to camp this year healthy. He's got three weeks of big league experience, which included a lot of ups and downs in that point in time and a lot of, a lot of swings and misses. And this is a guy who I think understands the science and the study of hitting pretty well. And I think those three weeks were pretty valuable for him. And so I think a full camp, based a full camp and the addition of that experience he had at the end of last year, I think serves as an opportunity for him to get some real momentum going into the year. Uh, and that's going to be important um, because there will be some ups and downs uh, as long as the guy's a rookie, he's going to have some adjustments to make. But I think that, that having had a full camp um, and, and having been able to take some projects at the end of last year and try to apply stuff to them, I think that's going to make a difference for Josh uh, both in, in terms of his confidence going into the season and in in results. I'm going to make a prediction about Josh Young. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, the the Rangers have not produced a star. I, I mean, you know, Joey Gallo, uh, you know, certainly a star-crossed player uh, with the Rangers. Uh, Joey, Joey was a, Joey's a fine everyday player. He, he, he's a fine – his career has profiled as a as a fine everyday player. He's got a lot of he's flaws, a, but he's been an everyday player. Well, he's a two-time All-Star, and he's got and he won a Gold Glove. So, right. I mean, that those are pretty impressive credentials. But we all know the the everyday problems. Correct. I'm going to say that Josh Young is the probably the best player this organization has produced since Mark Teixeira. Um. Well, I would debate with you on that only because I think that the best player this pl- this, this club has produced. Uh, let me just say this. Ian Kinsler, for me, is is every bit the equal that Mark Teixeira is. And Whoa, Kinsler was that. drafted three years, two years later, and 16 rounds later. So either way, it's been 20 years since the Rangers have produced what you would amount, what you would call an above-average everyday player from the draft. And... Yeah, it's time for them to start doing that again. Um, and I do think, I mean, I, I, I do think all the elements of hitting that we debate right now about what got about the influence of metrics and analytics and this and that, I think Josh Young has both a good swing and a good scientific and biomechanic grasp of this swing. So I think it puts him in position to be a very good player. I, I think Young is going to go into the season a little bit overshadowed among the Rookie of the Year candidates because Baltimore's Gunnar Henderson is a third baseman, and he's probably going to get the lion's share of early season publicity uh, but that and hype. But that doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that Josh Young can't is not a third-base rookie to watch this year. And, and, and I think he's got the ability to – to surpass a lot of people outside this organization's expectations for 2023. Um, yeah, I, the, th- the thing about Josh that I like is that he struck out way too much last year, obviously, when he was you like that? the club. No, I said, no. I said, of course he struck out <laughs> too much. Evan, you just be quiet. I sat here and listened patiently while you rambled on and on and on. Let me say what I want to say. I did ramble. 
Yeah. Uh, is that he does clearly have a grasp of what he's doing. Um, at the plate, you can just, you can just sense it, uh, that he, he, that he has a plan here. And that, that puts him above a lot of young baseball players. And it's, and certainly a long line of them. If we've seen have gone through the Rangers and that, and that leads me to my uh, next question for you, Evan, I know that I'm butting in on your, your five, uh, five things that you'd like for us all to know about. The no, Rangers. I was intending for it to be a discussion, not a monologue, but yes, go ahead. Okay. But the, is, is that, uh, because here's the thing. I do think that he's going to make it, but you are counting or the Rangers are counting on him to be a good player. And I think that's a rational, reasonable thing to think. They are also counting, though, on Leody Tavares uh, putting together a full season in center field. And at this point, since they have not added a left fielder, probably uh, one of the young guys that they're going to put out there in left field to do the same thing. And to me, this is this is the problem. What and I'm not asking Chris Young to solve all the Rangers' problems in one offseason. My gosh, he he loaded up so much in pitching. He he made more pitching moves in one offseason than the Rangers have made in the last ten. Uh, but uh, the same thing that's going to make that I think work with the pitching staff, adding all that kind of depth, is one of the issues that I have in in the outfield. Is that you've got two of those positions out there in the outfield with guys that you think can play but you're not sure. So you, you're not adding that kind of, of depth out there as well. Well, fig- figuring out left field is clearly one of the, one of the five projects of, of spring training. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got it a little bit down the list only because while it's important to find out who you're going to play there, I don't think you're really going to get an answer on that um, until you, until you turn the lights on for real and, and, and play regular season games. But I think, this team can withstand having a platoon or having something of an unsettled left field situation to start the year. If, if Leody Tavares takes a big step forward as the everyday center fielder, if Tavares plays like he did in the second half last year and you, you go into the season and now all of a sudden you've got questions in center field as well as left field. Yeah. It creates an awful lot of issues. Um, and then you're talking about, do you move Adolis Garcia to, to center field? Do you give Bubba Thompson a chance at center field? Um, it, it creates an awful lot of headaches. And yes, I would like to see a little bit more depth in the outfield. I think, again, the Rangers were, were presented with something of a Sophie's Choice late in December when it was, okay, the, the left fielder of your, of your, of your choice is not going to be available in Conforto do you go take the next best guy or do you say there's a pitcher that we think is significantly better than as a pitcher than what would be out there as a left fielder? And that's what they did. They took you out. So now you, you go to spring training and your left field situation is Josh Smith, um, uh, Clint Frazier, uh, Bubba Thompson, Brad Miller, those four guys, uh, two right-handers and two left-handers, all kind of buying for, for playing time. It's probably going to end up being a platoon. And quite frankly, I think Brad Miller should be more in the conversation for, for at bats at DH than he should be in left field. But let's see if, if the hip injury is now past him and uh, he shows a little bit more athleticism in left field. I did not think he looked good in left field at any point last year. But that's obviously going to be a story all spring is who did what in left field. Um, the other two things, Kevin, are, look, spring training is built for this stuff, right? It is built for something like 
a team that was a tremendously bad fundamental team last year working on fundamentals. Uh, no team needs more work on PFP, on pitchers fielding practice, than the Texas Rangers. They have been league worst in pitchers fielding for the past five years. Now, I don't think this means that they go out and spend three-hour days doing nothing but pitchers taking ground balls, but I do think that they need to stress it. Mike Maddox has said he need, he wants to stress it. He wants to work with some smaller groups, maybe a little bit more intense, and maybe get a few more reps in different situations. But they do need to make an effort. And, and look, with PFP, that's the most basic of all fundamentals. And if you make an effort there, I think it's going to be easier to make an effort in other areas that the Rangers need to address. And those are the kinds of things you make plays in that situation. You turn the double plays that you need to turn. You know, you you, you properly execute your bunt defense. All of a sudden, your one-run games become a lot more even in the one-loss column. And then the final thing is also a, a thing that's that's ripe for spring training and that every team in baseball, I think, is going to have to deal with, and that is this is going to be a spring of more teaching and a, adapting because of the number of rule changes. Pitchers are going to have to work with the pitch clock all spring and learn um, how to deal with that. Hitters, to some extent, are going to have to deal with that too because there's a lot of guys that, that, that step out, step in, those guys are going to have to be be more ready. Things like the shift, I think, will not be as big a deal for teams to uh, get away from as it was trying to get used to them. Uh, but then other elements like the shorter the the shortening of the bases just by a few inches, the path between the bases, and the limitations of of throwovers are going to create some strategy decisions that I think teams are going to test out and try and get an idea where they can where they can maybe exploit some weaknesses. So I think this spring is going to be a teaching spring for, for more than just the Rangers. There's a whole lot of other projects that the club needs to work on, but those really don't get put into practice until the season starts, right? I, I, my initial list had something like creating an identity, but I don't think you can create an identity until you're playing games for real. Uh, at that point in time, under pressure and, and in real game situations, those are the kinds of things that start to show themselves more. So that's my list. We'll get to, uh, we'll, we'll go into those in a little bit more detail in, in print and online, but that's my biggest issues. I don't know if either of you guys had any questions about something that you think they need to address. What we need to address right now is the fact that it is super dope bowl week. Uh, and we need to move on, Evan. Thank you. Oh, for That's a hard your, segue uh, out of that segment. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, it was yeah. our only way out. I mean, it's, it's like it was like a car on the freeway, and I'm trying to think, how can I get out of this car? I'm in the car with murderers. Do I open the door and roll out, or or what do I do? And it's like I elected to open the door and roll out onto the freeway. I so just that want was my to. <laughs> I, I would just like the readers and listeners to know it's Kay Sherrington at Dallas News when you have complaints about why does the columnist hate baseball, okay? <laughs> Do people really ask that question? Do people ask if we hate baseball? I've been at lunch with you when people said, hey, aren't you the guy who hates baseball? No. No, that's I you. Baseball. That's you uh, asking the question. Tim actually covered baseball, but he didn't I don't think he, Tim likes baseball as much as I. I think that Tim's problem, Tim Kalashaw's problem is that he doesn't like Rangers baseball. I think, I think that is a that is a much different question. 
Well, and Kevin, let's be honest. You like concessions. You don't really like the game that much. You like the concessions. Well, no, I like concessions at uh, in spring training. I don't like the concessions at the ballpark. Uh, you, you, want, you want a big scoop? You want a little I, you know, scoop the, on the, the concession? Out, the ball, out there at, at, the, at the ballpark, their idea of a good food is big food. Can we make this hot dog four feet long? Great. Let's shove it down people's throats. You know, this, hey, that's but not I'm, my I'm idea. You, let me tell you something. There is – a Hurtado barbecue stand, a permanent Hurtado barbecue stand going into Globe Life Field this year. Um, really? I'm, I'm thrilled with it um, because I think the quality control for, for a place that's only a mile away, they'll be able to control the quality pretty good. Uh, it's a local it's a local joint. And I have said in one of my few conversations on the field with ownership, I said to them a year ago, listen, this is a ballpark in Texas. You need to have a local barbecue spot and you need to have a local Tex-Mex taco spot in this ballpark, not two different chicken stands. So I'm really excited that Hurtado is going to be there. I think they do some really creative stuff. It'll be interesting to see what's going to be on their menu this year. Maybe you should ask those of you out there eating food or hot dogs at at I will post those weekly. Yeah. Uh, here's the thing. Evan's got a chance to, to have some uh, impact. I know, and he's on talking ownership. barbecue. And he's talking barbecue. Here, not, here not, he can go, this is what you should do with your pitching staff. Yeah. This is this how is, you proceed at third base. You Does think he do they that? Listen, you, no, oh, you think they, no. Hey, what about barbecue? <laughs> what about what about tacos? That's it. That's what Evan, when when the Rangers finally make the World Series. That's what Evan's going to write about. Is that I'm the one that got Hurtado barbecue? I got you your barbecue. <laughs> Other writers on the okay. way out get press spots that's named after them. Yeah, exactly. Evan, Evan will have like a a corner of the of the barbecue pit named after him. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, I love that. That'd be super. All right, that's going to do it for our Rangers segment. We'll talk more about spring training next week. We promise. Uh, once the Mavericks stop making uh, international news, um, <laughs> so uh, this is, as I noted, Super Bowl week. Uh, although it's hard to tell around here, I got to tell you, <laughs> that's what, uh, you know, Kevin. Thank you for the keen eye. <laughs> you, that's why you are the general columnist because you are such a keen observer of sports that no small little story goes unnoticed by you. The human condition, pal, the human condition. I have a keen observer of that. Uh, you know, I'm going to, who are the teams in column. the Super Bowl, Kevin? Well, I can't even remember the, the, <laughs> uh, I'm going to write a, a column later this week about the 30th anniversary of the, uh, <laughs> of the Cowboys' first Super Bowl parade under Jerry Jones. And I got to tell you, our old pal Tom Fox, the, the wonderful uh, photographer at the Dallas Morning News, is the one who, who put this bug in my ear. And and I, frankly, of course, I can't remember breakfast, but I went back and read our coverage of that. I don't know if y'all remember that. There were 400,000 people downtown for that parade on, fe- on February the 10th, 1993. 400,000 people. And it How was, many people it did were at the average well. championship parade in, in 2011? More? Oh, much less. Much, much less. less. They've never okay. had an event as big. It's, it was. It is considered the biggest event Dallas has ever hosted, and that's putting it lightly that they hosted it. Wow. It was pretty much a fiasco. Was it really? What uh, yeah, about a structure to it? No. There was... There were arrests, there were fights, there were all kinds of things, uh, and it was it was just pretty crazy. So, anyway, well, uh, imagine what that's it's what it used to be like, like if we get to the Super Bowl ever again. 
Well, absolutely it would be. Pretty much we would have to just burn down Dallas. Uh, so that uh, that's probably why, I think that's why Jerry Jones has not put together another championship team is that he's afraid of what might happen. Should we should we put that as the headline on this? Kevin Sherrington, burn down, burn Dallas. down Dallas. Yeah, that'd be great. Let's do that. So uh, let's see here. Uh, it's it's Super Bowl week. It it never is really here though uh, in Dallas. So so David, uh, we're going to make our Super Bowl predictions before we get out of this podcast, which we we will get out. We do promise that it will <laughs> like, be over please. at some point. Uh, That's but, our gift to everyone. We will end <laughs> soon. We promise. Exactly. But before we get there, let's talk about the fact that Brian Schottenheimer was named the offensive coordinator, which of course is just in name only. He's just. He's just nursing the offense uh, six days a week, and then uh, Mike McCarthy takes things over on Sundays. So, um, David, uh, give us an idea of uh, Brian Schottenheimer's background and whether this was any kind of surprise uh, for you at all that he ended up being the OC. Well, one, let me say we started this podcast under my personal protest, because you guys said everyone was talking about Kyrie Irving. I maintain everybody is talking about Brian Schottenheimer being named <laughs> offensive coordinator. <laughs> I, I think your news value is greatly warped and out of proportion for what yeah. true Metroplex, Metroplex fans are discussing at the moment. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, a lot of people say they weren't surprised. I was a little surprised because my understanding was that they were going to look outside of the organization uh, to fill the offensive coordinator role uh, with Mike McCarthy calling the plays. Um, but but I think once they actually started talking to people and started really digging into, okay, well, how attractive is this position to go outside the organization and bring someone in when we say – you have to work within these constraints. You're not going to be calling the plays. Um, I think that became less attractive for people outside the organization. So then it kind of refocused the conversation on, well, what are we doing here? We want uh, we want this to be as comfortable and and for the coordinator to shape to share the same philosophical bent as Mike McCarthy's. So who better in the building? than we have here right now, who was a consultant this past year, than Brian Schottenheimer. Um, you know, Mike McCarthy cut his NFL teeth on Marty Schottenheimer's, uh, Brian's father's staff in Kansas City. Uh, that's uh, the system he grew up under. Uh, that's certainly the system that he shares with Brian. Um, you know, Brian Schottenheimer's been a coordinator. Brian Schottenheimer's been in the NFL for 22 years, 12 of those have been his offensive coordinator. So he has the background there. I, I see our, our listeners cannot see this, thankfully, but it appears Evan is, is raising his hand and has a question. I think he just needs to go to the restroom. <laughs> well, I do need – I have a very tiny bladder. Um, but the, the, it, the question I, I, I have is, like – how attractive a job would this have been to an outside candidate if you're the offensive coordinator without an offense to actually coordinate or plays to call and under this hierarchy that, you know, in, in that is this that's plainly dysfunctional throughout the league. So, uh, yeah, I think that's it. I, I think no one said, well, well, how can I advance there? Will I just be boxed in? And And the only scenario where you break out of that box is, say, this works for a couple of years and then. 
Mike McCarthy goes, oh, well, you have my ultimate trust. This is too much. Uh, I'll give it back to you to call the plays now. But, you know, that that's a scenario that's difficult to play out, uh, especially when you know McCarthy's in going into the fourth year of a five-year contract. So That's a lot of I, assumption, yeah. Yes, I just think there are too many questions for anyone from the outside uh, who was in a good position right now to say, yeah, this, this makes sense for me to do. Uh, but for Brian Schottenheimer, who was a consultant, uh, whose last role before he was a consultant in Dallas, he was the pass game coordinator for one ill-fated year under Urban Meyer in Jacksonville. Uh, you know, this makes sense for him. And and we haven't had a chance to talk to, to Mike McCarthy or Brian Schottenheimer yet, but I know people are saying, well, how is this going to work? What, what does it do? And, and th- this may be this may be a flawed analogy, but it is one I've kind of come up with. I think this is a little bit like uh, someone who writes a novel or a script for a play. They're not the ones that bring it to life. Someone else brings it to life. You know, I think Brian McCarthy's going, uh, Schottenheimer, excuse me, Brian Schottenheimer will be the person who designs the game plan for the week to say, this is how we attack this defense this week. These are what, this is the design. This is how we want to get into it. Uh, he's going to be the one that runs and oversees practices and works with the position coaches during the week. Uh, all of that formatics of it. And then we'll get together with Mike McCarthy. And Mike McCarthy is going to be the one who brings it to life. What's the sequencing? When do you go with this play? When do you not? Um, you know, what's the order going to be? So I, I think that is probably without talking to the principals, that's probably as good of a way to explain it on how this is going to work at the moment. All right. Uh, I got to tell you, he needs to make sure he, he leaves that Jacksonville thing off his resume. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, especially when you see what happened to the Jaguars after that staff was gone, right? First year, boom, all of a sudden Trevor Lawrence looks just like the guy everybody expected him to be. Uh, these were not encouraging things. Uh, uh, well, let's give him the had, Urban Meyer Hall pass for working under Urban for well, that, that year. I, I I, he, yes, I yeah, will The, the less we say about Urban Meyer on this po- podcast, the better <laughs> off we are. Uh, I kind of like, I like the name Urban Meyer, though. It feels like, you know, like Urban Renewal. You know, if if I was gonna if if, if he was gonna come back and I have his PR guy, that's what I was I would bill it as is urban renewal, right? He was gonna try to. That's as bad. That's career. Kevin. That's as bad as I wonder if he's got a brother named Rural. <laughs> no, it's not as bad as that. That's much worse. Much much worse. Is is there any uh, greater sign that we need to wrap this up? Can we get to the predictions this, already? Okay, I, I'm, I'm ready now. Golly, I let David <laughs> go, and you know, I, I let you guys just go and hang yourselves, and then y'all are yelling at me about Us, what, what's going oh, Mr. on, Mr. Urban Renewal. Kevin's very <laughs> upset about the uh, ratio of words per uh, <laughs> per podcast here. Well, yeah, when when our producer Christian Vasquez is circling his finger while you're talking about the Rangers, and then you just blow right past that one, man. That was like they were telling you to, hey, you need to come in now, come in for gas and fuel, and Evan just smoked right past. No, we're just gonna keep on going. Pal. And I can't even blame it on not seeing Christian because unlike <laughs> you, I have my camera on. I know. I leave my camera off secretly just because I can't stand it. But anyway, I, I honestly, Kevin, just looking at a at a big blank space where your where your name is 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 it's appropriate. Bliss, it's bliss. It's okay. representative. Right. Yeah, no kidding. All right, here we go with our predictions. Evan, you go first. 
Who do you first of all, Evan? Do you know who's playing in the Super Bowl on Sunday? Yes, I do. Um, it is the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs, and I'm once again conflicted. I started out this podcast conflicted about uh, Kyrie Irving, and I'm conflicted about who to pick in this game. Um, Patrick Mahomes. I will give Kevin always the credit for being very early on the Patrick Mahomes train, and I believe he is a transcendent quarterback. But I feel like the Eagles have the better defense here, and I think ultimately that makes the difference. Uh, And so I'm taking the Eagles 27-20. All right. David? I agree with Evan from the standpoint that the Eagles have the better defense. Um. Then I would also point out, did you see what Dak Prescott did against that defense? I think uh, a really talented uh, offense playing at the top of its game can still expose some things on Philadelphia's defense. Um, This will be Patrick Mahomes' fourth Super Bowl now, right? I think that's correct. Third. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, And third, third, yeah. And uh, um, to really establish yourself as everyone is, especially now with Brady gone, has anointed him as the as the standard bearer. Right. He's the uh, he's the epitome of this position at the moment. Now, suddenly you lose two out of your three Super Bowls that you've been in you probably start to look at that a little bit differently. And I'm not saying that's a driving factor in this game, but you would look, you would start to look at the Chiefs and, and Mahomes, I think, a little bit differently if they don't win this based on the fact that they've put themselves there uh, in, in three of the last four years. I think it's going to be a really good game. I, 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 but I, I lean toward uh, Kansas City, and, and it's because of Mahomes. And... Um, he hasn't always had good Super Bowl performances. So I think that's also something that he wants to rectify here. If he's the player we all think he is, even against this defense, I think it will show. I'll say Kansas City, um, I'll actually go like 31 to 23, something along those lines. And David, before we get to Kevin's prediction, I will just say this. The flip side of that thing is if Patrick wins this game on that ankle, after having played the AFC yes. Championship and the divisional round on that ankle, this will go down as a truly transcendent performance and, and run, and he will enter the conversation of what? Top five quarterbacks exactly of all right. time, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Kevin? Well, that was going to be my point about uh, Patrick. If, if he were completely healthy and the ankle were not an issue at all, then yeah, I would, I would take the chiefs. I just think they've got too much firepower for the Eagles. If, if he's healthy. Um, the problem is that he's, uh, he's not, I mean, we know that he had the injury. We know it's not a hundred percent. It's a, it's a miracle. He played on it as well as he did against the Bengals. I, uh, the issue for the Bengals was they didn't really rush him. You know, they didn't blitz him. They didn't make him get outside the pocket. And then of course he did get outside a couple of times and he did just fine. But I don't think they did enough of that. Um, that's been the thing about Patrick is that outside the pocket, he's still obviously extremely effective. He's also the most accurate uh, quarterback in the league inside the pocket. So I, I would I would like to see, and, the, and certainly the Eagles have a great pass rush. I think that will have the say about everything, how much they can get to him, how much they can disrupt him, 
maybe perhaps make him uncomfortable and get outside the pocket. If they can do that, then the Eagles will win this game, and I'm going to say 24 to 21. Uh, if they don't do that, though, Patrick's going to do that. And I think, really, whatever he does at this point, wins or not, he's got a long career ahead of him, and he is still far and away the best quarterback in the league, and I think he will remain that no matter what Joe Burrow says about uh, Burrow Heads, or he didn't say that about Burrow Head Stadium, but his teammates say, and uh, and Joe's certainly very confident of himself. There's no question about that. But Patrick Mahomes has separated himself from everyone else and is already approaching historic proportions of his career. So to wrap right. up our to wrap up our predictions, everybody, that is Evan Eagles, David Chiefs, and I believe what I heard from Kevin is either the Eagles or the Chiefs. Is that correct? Either the Eagles or the Chiefs. That's correct. Good. Yeah. Okay. That, 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 no, I've said the Eagles. I'm going with the Eagles, but I will say if if Patrick is is any better, and there's no reason for him to be better, right? It's not a miracle, you know. He's had a high ankle sprain. Those are those are significant injuries. Uh, they do usually affect guys. He didn't. It didn't seem like it very much against the Bengals, although he he was limping around a lot after plays. Uh, it, it looked. It's almost like. Willis Reed out there dragging himself around on the field occasionally. Yep. And if we do get that right, we're all winners because we will we will have seen a a historic performance by a transcendent quarterback. No, no question about that. Well, you know, and then you've got the story of Jalen Hurts. Uh, you know, I I think a lot of us still have a hard time buying into that story, right? How did this guy all of a sudden, from where he was two years ago, rise to this level of taking this team to the Super Bowl? Uh, yep. It's just phenomenal. How much of that? Is, is still Nick Sirianni, you know, the, in his offense and what he was able to do and tailor that to Jalen Hurts' skill set. I do I do think that that is a, is a significant part of his story. Uh, the difference for me between Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes is that I think you could put Patrick Mahomes in any offense that you wanted and he'd still be great. Uh, he is what every uh, organization has ever wanted as a quarterback. He can win no matter what you want to do and how you want to do it. Uh, Jalen Hurts, I do believe, is a guy that you have to tailor the offense to what he does best, and that's not a knock against him. That's true of about, oh, I don't know, 30 other quarterbacks in the league. So, so hey, that's what do you want to talk about now for the next 30 minutes? Y'all have no, I think that's going to do it. I think that we have sure. – I think I can, I can hear the, the listeners' ears bleeding right now. <laughs> so I, I'm so sensitive to that sort of thing. Uh, that I don't want to subject them to any more of that. That's going to do it for our podcast this week. Of course, next week when we come back, we'll uh, we'll know who did win that game in the Super Bowl. Hopefully it was a good one. Uh, we will get to see at some point, uh, by that time, we'll get to discuss how Kyrie Irving played uh, as he's supposed to play on Wednesday night. Uh, and we'll see how that, how that works. And, oh, and I'll uh, and be on the ground in Arizona. I'll be able to give you a tour of the spring training house. That will be super. That's how we can open next week's podcast. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll see about that. (laughs) David and I might just do it without you. That might be a a thought. We could do that, too. We we promise we'll have all three of us back at least next week, and maybe even more. Who knows? We might start adding other people to the podcast. We'll see. Uh, So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time. Bye.